I don't recommend it anyway, so. <laughs> you don't recommend it? No, 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 I don't. <laughs> it's a good experience, but um, like if I if if I have to do it again, I mean, I'll be thinking I'll be thinking long and hard about it. Yeah, fair enough. Just the luxury of electricity and uh, flushing toilets and stuff is, you know. Yeah. You get a bit of dirt in in your world. <laughs> <laughs> You just got to make peace with the dirt, really. It's all part of the, the living situation. You're listening to Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. So this is Naomi. So hi, Jake. Uh, my name's Naomi Indigo. I am a PhD candidate with the University of Technology, Sydney. And Naomi has spent the last two years living in a tent. It's been good, though. I can't, I'm not complaining, but yeah, you get a bit of dirt in, in your world. And although she says she'd have to have a big think about whether she'd do it all over again, what she's doing, she feels pretty strongly about. Naomi is working with cane toads. Um, and at the moment, I'm doing a research project uh, looking at if we can use conditioned taste aversion uh, to mitigate cane toad impacts on northern quolls. Break that down for me. Conditioned taste aversion, what does that mean? So conditioned taste aversion, uh, CTA, is the process where an animal ingests a food item, becomes ill, and subsequently will avoid that food item as a result of the illness or the unpleasant experience. Why would anything want to eat a cane toad? Well, in Australia, it's a problem because cane toads resemble an existing prey type for a lot of our native predators. So goannas and snakes and our marsupial predators like quolls um, will eat frogs. They look at them and think, this is a frog. I can eat this just like I've eaten any other old frog. What happens to them? Like, do they die? It's often very fatal. Um, They can die just from attacking or mouthing a cane toad. Mouthing, what does that mean? Just maybe if they were to grab their prey, grab a cane toad in their mouth, they don't even really need to bite into it. The cane toads can excrete this poison. They have large glands on their shoulders um, and also it's all over their skin too. The pores in their skin uh, secrete this bufotoxin. And you're talking about novel solutions. If there were ever a more novel solution, it's make a sausage out of them. It is. It is a very novel solution, um, but it makes sense. I guess if you unpack it, we can easily put these sausages out in the landscape. Quolls are quite attracted to them, and then they don't eat cane toads afterwards. And so run me through what the actual process is. Like, you run out to where these cane toads are, and you collect them, right? Yeah, so we collect the cane toads, and we skin their back legs, once they're euthanized, obviously, Uh, We use their back legs to make a mince, and then we include uh, the nausea-inducing chemical, which makes the quolls feel sick. So this is a replacement for the bufotoxin. We don't want to feed quolls bufotoxin. We don't know what the lethal dose of bufotoxin is. So this other chemical is a replacement. And basically, we make a mince mix, uh, and we stuff it into a sausage skin just the same way as you would make a sausage intended for human consumption. And you're doing this? I am doing this. Every few months, I do make a big batch uh, to put out into my study sites and out into the landscape. How long do they last? 
Well, at the moment, unfortunately, they might only last for about three days max. If you can imagine a Kimberley wet season day where you might have temperatures of 45 degrees and baking sun, three days is the longest we can get them to last for. And for CTA or for conditioned taste aversion to actually work, the sausages need to be as much like a cane toad as possible. So we're still searching for a chemical or a preservative that will help make our sausages last for longer while not compromising the smell or the taste of the sausage. Why use the cane toad's legs? The legs are the least toxic part of the cane toad, especially once they're skinned. There's no glands in the legs that is full of bufotoxins. So, and it's also the, the most accessible, I guess. It's got the most amount of meat on it too. And it speeds the process up of uh, making the sausages. You just clip the legs off and make the mince. What do you do with the rest of the toad? The rest of the toad is incinerated. Um, we, yeah, we don't leave them out in the landscape um, or even, you know, in, in rubbish pits or anything. So we're yet to find ways that we could use the entire cane toad, but because they are so poisonous, it's a little bit risky. And toads jump, right? How do you, how do you manage to catch them? They do jump, but they are quite slow and they often don't flee the same way that you might uh, see other frogs or even other amphibians escaping when you approach them. Often you just need to, you just walk up to them and pick them up. You have to make sure that you have gloves on because the bufotoxin is also, you know, highly toxic to humans too. So you're making the sausage, you're getting the legs and that's what's turning into the sausage mince. And you said that there's some sort of like nausea-mimicking chemical that you put in. What, what is this chemical? It's called thiobendazole. It's been used for a long time. It's, it's relatively safe. The toxic dose is quite high and the effects are quite localised in the digestive system. So it was, a, it was an ideal chemical. Also, it's, we can acquire it quite easily and it's cheap too. So it's cost-effective for this, this project. How do you also kind of monitor or keep tabs on the fact that a quoll might eat this sausage and then they'll feel sick because of this um, chemical that's been put into it and then know that they won't go out and eat a cane toad again? How do you, how do you follow that? So myself and a few other researchers have been asking ourselves this question for a long time. There's been various studies that have taken place. So we've trained quolls in captivity and released them into the wild and measured their survival, followed them until they're happy with, you know, the outcome. Um, also, we've trialled this in captivity and offered offered quolls dead toads, adult toads, and measured their predatory responses uh, through filming. It's quite a strong indication that animals that have ingested a cane toad sausage will avoid attacking cane toads and spend significantly less time even being interested in dead cane toads as well. So you were saying as well that the baits at this point only last to maybe about tops of three days. What happens after then? Do they just do they just kind of like disintegrate? They don't. They Well, they would eventually uh, biodegrade just like any sort of meat product would in the environment. When we were first trialling the sausages, um, we did remove all the baits every evening just because we wanted to make sure that uh, no non-target species were eating them, we wanted to we wanted to know exactly what was what the fate of our bait was going to be. Right. Yeah. I was actually going to ask that if you put out these baits, have you seen other animals eat them? We have, but significantly less. Quolls are very interested in these baits. We did do some field trials, uh, and we saw that 
for example, 61% of the quolls that approached our sausages actually consumed them when they first encountered them. And about 68% of these developed an aversion. So they came back and sniffed sausages again, but didn't actually eat them. So yeah, other non-targets that were interested include rock rats. What's a rock rat? A rock rat is a native rat. They live in rocky gorges in the central Kimberley at our study sites. Yeah, essentially a rat that lives in rocks. <laughs> uh, we also had goannas that we get out there who showed interest in baits, uh, although didn't consume. Before having heard about this research, to be honest, I didn't even, I don't think I even really knew what a quoll was. Yeah, so I guess they're quite an iconic marsupial predator. And yeah, I often find when I do say I'm studying quolls, a lot of people mistake that for a quail which is a small bird, a ground-dwelling bird. But they are, like I said, really iconic. They're aesthetically pleasing, I guess. They're cute and fluffy. Um, and they're ferocious too. So I think they're quite uh, a quintessential Australian animal. Um, and, they're, and they're quite integral to our ecosystems as well. Having native predators in our ecosystems is really important. What's the end goal here? Is it to boost quoll numbers again, or is there another end goal for the research? Essentially... Quolls are federally endangered and have often seen complete disappearance of quolls in areas uh, where cane toes have arrived almost immediately. So this research is sort of to try and mitigate the impact. So we're not boosting quoll numbers. We're literally just trying to stabilise the population or give it a helping hand basically as a new threat emerges in their landscape. So cane toads being the threat. If you're talking about looking at keeping an ecological balance, shouldn't you also be looking at how to get rid of cane toads? So there is a lot of research going on. I know the University of Sydney, the Shine Lab, has been working really hard on um, ways to actually eradicate cane toads. What does it seem like to you being out on the field, not only just seeing numbers of quolls, but I guess numbers of cane toads? Is it the plague that has been described in the past? So it starts off you might find one or two cane toads in an area. And then you also start to see goannas uh, dead or crocodiles dead in the landscape. So that front line of cane toads comes through as really large individuals. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's very sad to see. And then, you know, the cane toads will stay for a while. They'll establish their population and begin to breed. And that's when you start to see uh, really large numbers of them, particularly in the wet season when it's raining and humid. Uh, you hear them calling at night looking for mates, it's quite sad. How do you feel about cane toads now? Um, well, I find them quite fascinating. They are essentially the Australian enemy. Nobody likes a cane toad. In some ways, I feel a bit sorry for them. I feel bad saying that. I think I'm, I'm going to cop a lot for saying that. But um, they're essentially very successful animals, being that they've been able to adapt to a new landscape so well and have such a large, large impact. But yeah, personally, I don't despise cane toads. I don't like what they've done to the landscape. But yeah, it's just, they're an animal too. Love and hate relationship. It's a love and hate relationship. Yeah, um, definitely. I would definitely say so. I do, I don't, you know, I don't give them cuddles and I don't find them attractive uh, in any way, <laughs> but <laughs> they're interesting. Naomi Indigo, PhD student from the University of Technology, Sydney. 
Think sustainability. We'll be back in a sec. This is Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Malcolm. In 2015, there were more than 18 million registered vehicles driving on Australian roads, and according to a new report from the Australian Automobile Association, our cars are using nearly 25% more fuel than advertised. The same report also found that hybrid electric cars. We're emitting four times more greenhouse gases than consumers were being led to believe. Nick Sorowski, I'm a fairly newly appointed lecturer in vehicle emissions and air quality at UTS. Spoke to producer Miles Herbert about this report, but also how these vehicles are made and why they're emitting more than you might realise. The emissions behaviour of a vehicle. Is different on road compared to in the laboratory. For example, in the laboratory, we don't have the effects of drag. There's no air moving past the vehicle like you'd have on the road. And of course, the the driving behaviours that are programmed into the test cycles are quite different to how you or I would drive our vehicle on the road. Yeah. So, what are those differences? What do those differences in the testing look like? Some of the big differences are the acceleration patterns that you get in a prescribed test cycle or a regulatory test cycle compared to. What happens on road? There's more factors to influence driving behaviour in an on-road environment. Traffic congestion, maintenance of roads, and things like that. All of those factors sort of conspire to really show that there's a clear difference between what happens in a laboratory and what happens on road. So it skews the testing to say that vehicles are actually emitting less. Well, I guess this is part of the problem. I mean, engine manufacturers are very good at getting vehicles to meet, for example, a, a CO2 emissions standard within a laboratory setting. But when we bring those vehicles on road, the emissions performance, due to those reasons that I was talking about, totally different situation on road, and that's the key issue here. How do they go about doing that? How do they skew the testing, or how do they, you know, carefully calibrate it to get those cars to pass the emissions tests? Well, I guess that's that's. Pretty much through the the computer that controls the operating parameters of the engine. Pretty much a, a set of lookup tables that are provided on the engine's computer to basically say, well, if the speed is this and the torque is this, this is how much fuel that I inject when and where. Those sorts of things. And why are these vehicle emissions tests important? Who do they serve? The emission standards are in place largely to protect public health. So I mean, we've got regulated pollutants from vehicles that we have to we have to monitor and regulate to make sure that. You know, we can live in our cities, and people don't get sick from what's spewing out of the tailpipe. And then, of course, you've got the the climate implications of transport as well. So, obviously, we need fuel efficiency standards to be met, so that you know the environmental impact of of vehicles is minimised as well. And do you think that the current way we go about testing vehicle emissions is doing those two things? Well, well, no, and that's I mean that the key point being is that on-road emissions performance is totally different to what happens in a lab now. Obviously, the on-road emissions performance is the real thing. That's what we should care about. And the problem is, is that with the legislation that we've got in place at the moment, we don't really know how big this problem is because you know our emissions standards lag so far behind what's been implemented in other places in the world. So, for Europe, for example, they've enacted this new legislation as of last month, and at least at the political level in Australia, we haven't got any sign as to when we're going to adopt the, the latest standards here. Is there a reason for that? 
Well, I think um, the the engine market here is quite small relative to other places, um, the states, Europe, Asia. But I think it's maybe maybe it's a broader thing. I think Australians are sort of inherently sort of risk averse, and they'd rather let someone else do the hard thinking, at least in terms of emissions legislation, before introducing anything here. For me, it seems like something pretty hard to regulate because you have so many different people coming from so many different places, right? You have the federal government, then you have the manufacturers, then you have like the car companies, right? So even in the United States, we had the Volkswagen scandal where they were saying their emissions met a certain standard, but it actually didn't. So does the federal government do a good job of, of regulating this stuff? Well, I think they're, they're acting in the public's best interests, but I think the recommendation would be is that we can clearly do more to, I guess, harmonise our emission standards with what other places in the world are doing. I mean, China, for example, probably in about three years' time, by 2020, they'll pretty much have the world's toughest emission standards for vehicles. Um, so it shows that with a bit of political um, nous, you know, these decisions can be made for the better. But yeah, unfortunately, those sorts of decisions don't you know, necessarily appear to be on the radar here in Australia, unfortunately. How do we get our legislation to look like they do around the world? Yeah, that's that's not something I'm 100% sure of, but I guess it's it's a political decision that needs to be made. I mean, legislation is in place for, well, the Euro 6D uh, standards, uh, which were enacted in September last month. I mean, for us to adopt um, the latest standards, I guess it's a, it's a matter of perhaps... Uh, an elected member who has an interest in the environment to, to put that forward as a, as a piece of legislation that should be enacted. I mean, that would be the mechanism for, for you know, harmonising our emission standards with what we've got in Europe at the moment. Because it's not going to come from the engine manufacturers? Oh, no. No, I, I doubt that it would be. I think probably for them the most cost-effective solution is for them to continue doing what they're already doing. Well, it just seems kind of common sense, right? Like a car is going to act differently on the road than it does in the lab, right? That's right. So where's the disconnect? Okay, on-road testing is a fairly new phenomenon. The first patent was lodged for a a PEM system early this century. So we've only had probably 15 years of experience of even deploying uh, emissions laboratories on the tailpipe of a vehicle. So obviously the the on-road, real-world driving conditions is a relatively new and largely sort of unexplored topic, whereas in tandem in-lab testing has its own history and has evolved uh, over several decades, you know, 30, 40 years plus. And I guess the two communities probably haven't, you know, communicated as much with each other as they probably should. So I think it's it's for those sorts of historical reasons that we've got the situation where test cycles in the lab don't really represent what real drivers do. Because of the lack of legislation around our emissions testing, do our cars emit more carbon emissions than other places around the world? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, the transport sector in Australia is notoriously fuel inefficient. And that's, yeah, partly once again coming back to the fact that um, we're allowing vehicles into our market that don't meet the most advanced technologies uh, on offer at the moment. Uh, And then, of course, you've got every own economy has its own particular way of driving. I mean, how we would make vehicles more fuel efficient by driving properly would be different here than, you know, a, a solution that might be used in, in other places of the world. Each, each market's got its own particular differences that have to be accounted for. Nick Sorowski, lecturer in vehicle emissions and air quality at the University of Technology, Sydney.
That's it for Think Sustainability this week. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you are subscribed to us. Just find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Think Sustainability. Also, for more info about this show, you can head to 2SER.com. This show is made possible with the support of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morkham. I'll catch you next time. This show is heard on community radio stations around Australia via the Community Radio Network.